I shouldn't have gone on the way I did. I made everybody cry. I'm sorry. Silly. Laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. I'm Jeff Hiller. And I'm Mark Sam Rosenthal. And this is our podcast. It's where we talk about sad stuff that wasn't funny at the time. But thankfully, we can laugh about it now. Because laughter through tears is our favorite emotion. Mark Sam, I'm so glad to be back talking about parental mortality. Yeah, it's definitely, it's uplifting. (laughs) I've been really looking forward to talking about it. You know what? That shows you the state of my life right now is that I genuinely have been. (laughs) It's like a bright spot in my day to talk about our parents dying, Jeff. (laughs) Now, on our last episode, we left with a slight cliffhanger. You get this call from your mom. Mm -hmm. Your dad is HIV positive. Mm-hmm. I probably will be too. Mm-hmm. Don't tell your brother. Yeah, that was the best part. Don't tell your brother. <laughs> oh, great. Well, what What should I do? Just go to the cafeteria, use my meal plan right now? Like get a snack, eat some feelings? <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? Do you remember? I was in bed with my friend, Laura. Not in a carnal way, um, clearly. <laughs> As discussed we are profoundly homosexual. <laughs> profoundly. Gold star or whatever it's called. I forget. Um, I'm, I, I definitely have the, I'm a frequent flyer in the, uh, in the plan, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> you know, I knew we were going to be getting the results and I was pretty certain that, that, that they were not going to be good. Mm-hmm. And I had asked my friend, Laura, uh, to who just been the night with me basically. Cause I was like, I just don't, I can't be alone right now. Had you shared these things with anyone else? Like your fear that your dad might be positive. I had shared them with that counselor at the school, you know, counseling program, Brad. And then I had shared them with Laura. Um, Are you still friends with Laura? I'm great friends with Laura. I spoke to her this past week. I love her to death. <laughs> and um, well, literally I loved her too my dad's death. And so I sort of tumbled out of bed. I got the phone call. That's the phone call. Your dad has AIDS. <laughs> Basically, it was like, it's full-blown AIDS. It wasn't even just positive. Um, you know. And, and what did he say? How did he justify, or not justify, but like, how did he explain that diagnosis? Well, he didn't explain it right away that night. First of all, I should say, before I get too far down the line about dad, Um, I really luckily only had to live for about 24 hours worrying that both parents were going to die. They did manage to speed up mom's test results. And, and instead of having to wait for several days, we actually found out in 24 hours, roughly that she was not HIV positive. Um, So, you know, blessings of them not having a very active sex life. Um, (laughs) So Diana, um, so that was uh, that was lucky. But then we got to tell my brother, but I didn't tell my brother. So you got to, I know, right? Now we can tell him. <laughs> Surprise! Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I left that to mom and dad. So dad, dad explained the diagnosis not by saying you know he had you know sex with men or was an IV drug user, but rather that he had once helped a bleeding homeless man in the parking lot of the Exxon refinery in Baton Rouge. Um, And that there must've been some blood 
contact, some exchange of blood somehow from this homeless man to some open source in my father. <laughs> Although, I mean, I guess it's, it's possible that he did get it from a homeless man, but just not the way he said. But we'll never know, or at least we don't know. Um, so that's what he, that was what he explained. Now, that story didn't hold a lot of water with me. Um, what about I, with the rest of your family? You know, everybody just kind of said, okay, okay. It was one of those things where it was like nobody, if they wondered whether that were really feasible, was interested or willing to say, I wonder if that's really feasible, <laughs> including <laughs> me. Let's not pick at this story. Let's not pick at this story lest it just disappear completely. Exactly. Like, like, like everything that we're, you know, you know, like, like our entire existence could unravel even more than it already is going to. <laughs> um, right. So, but I, you know, I know that that's not, you know, it's not really a viable transmission method. Right. So I didn't believe that at all. And I was really angry about that. It was hard to process the fact that he was going to die because I was just angry at the, the fact that there was this lie happening. You know, it, keep in mind at that point, I'm 20 years old. Um, and, you know, I'm like out. And I'm, you know, that's my identity. And it's, you know how you are when you're just like newly out and you're, you know, there's, you know, don't put me back in the closet. And, you know, like, it's like. I want jewelry with rainbow on it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like t-shirts and stuff, you know, fight the power. And I don't want to live in this world of secrets anymore. Closets and clothes. closets are for clothes and my dad. Um, and so I was just so, um, let's just say it was really, I didn't have sympathy at that time. I had, um, anger, you know, sympathy for, you know, the, the time he lived, when he lived, where he lived, the choices he made. I just, you know, I was very, um, I was very self-righteous about my, being out and uh, just about being out in general and uh, and how how you were out in 1995 why couldn't he come out in 1960 right 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 well exactly <laughs> I probably didn't want to look at that right then uh. <laughs> so here's my question that diagnosis said gay right or, or, yeah. or I suppose, yeah, an IV drug. Use. Yeah, but it really said gay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I, I know that when I came out in the, in, it was a little bit later than you, and I came out like in 1998, that like one of the first things was like fear of my safety around HIV. Yes. And so I would imagine, I mean, did your parents have that? reaction when you came out to them? Uh, that wasn't the main one. I mean, it was more like, 
as I told you, it was more my mother saying like, are you sure you can't fight it? But then, you know, she surrendered. Um, it was, it was less about that. Although when there turned out to be AIDS in the house, you know, in my father's body, um, and I, I, I don't think about this part of it very much anymore. I do, you know, talk about blocking things out, but there was a lot of fear, certainly on my mom's part. And it was just kind of omnipresent about like, about can we, can other people get this somehow because it's in the house? And also keep in mind, you know, look, we know it's not the easiest thing to get, but then dad made up a story Right. That made it look like it was easier to get than it is. Right. So that frightened my mother. And I don't know that my brother was so frightened. I don't know. We, it wasn't a big topic of conversation. But I do remember there was one time where my dad like fell, cut himself and, you know, was like bleeding a lot. And my little cousin Maggie was like near there. And, you know, she was like. I don't even know, nine years old or something. And it was just like, there was hysteria, certainly on my mother's <laughs> part um, about this, you know, blood and my cousin. And meanwhile, you can step in a puddle of, you know, HIV positive blood and you're not going to get, you're not going to just magically become HIV positive. But you know that again, that was a story that my father had put out there, which was not true. And right. I think it, you know, it created some some extra trauma right. around that. Um, I, luckily for me, it didn't really because I knew that that's not how you get it. Um, right. Right. But it was hard to, you know, convince my mother and maybe others of that because you know everyone was sort of going along with the story, um, mm -hmm. and but nobody. Nobody commented on the fact that like you were self-identified as one of the high risk groups for contracting this virus also? No, not to my memory. I mean, the focus was very squarely on dad is dying. Sure. <laughs> it was something I thought about of like, well, I'm not, I don't want to get this too because my dad has it and right. we can't both have it. So but that was my focus. In fact, I remember that summer that I went home between junior and senior year of college when dad, you know, was when he was sick uh, on my birthday, because that's the day that it was. I drove down to New Orleans for some safe sex, gay safe sex seminar that I'd like found out about. I don't know how you found out about anything. Also, P.S. in 1995. Like, I mean, like the gay bookstores yeah like there must have been a flyer somewhere you know but like <laughs> but i did and i was and i told them and i was i remember this conversation i it came from me more than it came from them this concern that you're talking about i mm. said look i found out about this thing in new orleans and i'm gonna drive down for the day and do this and it was on my birthday <laughs> that's how i spent my 21st birthday wow <laughs> at a gay safe sex seminar in new orleans <laughs> the guy who put it on was super cute too i remember that <laughs> but you didn't get laid no i didn't get laid but i there was a moment where i thought i wonder if i could <laughs> but i was also like i mean i was a little skeeved out by also just like mentioning like gonorrhea is like a real like 
gives me a real hard off. Yes, it was a hard off for sure. So, um, <laughs> but that's that's what I did. And I remember telling them that. And that was kind of like, you know, it's not like we discussed sex a lot in our family. It wasn't a sex talking house. Um, <laughs> so I remember like, it was kind of a big, it was like a big statement on my part. Like I'm going to this thing. I want to make sure I know what I'm doing to stay right. safe. Right. And they were so, kind of like, good, good, good. But they didn't want to hear about it, obviously. Was there anybody in his world or family that called him out on it? Or, or did you get word of anybody like? Yeah, I actually remember being kind of amazed that these people were like rallying around my dad. Hmm. I was like, don't you guys know what's going on here? <laughs> like, you're, you've all, you're all being like, there's a, such a fiction happening here. And now, you know, again, the self-righteousness that I had, I was just like, how could anybody tolerate this? And, you know, it takes years and time and changing and growing up to realize that, you know, okay, well, whatever people, people knew or thought what they knew or thought, but the bottom line was that their friend was dying. And, you know, so the bulk of them showed up. Uh, that was a big deal in 1995. I mean, I guess in a certain way, in a certain society, that's a big deal now. Yeah, I suppose so. But I mean, definitely at the time. Do you think your dad, had he not been, you know, struck down or killed, or um, what trailblazed, um, would he, do you think he would have eventually come out or? You know, that is such a wonderful question. And I've certainly wondered it. And I just don't think so. Hmm. But I mean, that's just speculation, you know? Um, I just don't think that was, I just don't think that was something he was really um, capable of. Well, at that time, you know, I mean, he, he his his growth stopped at a very specific. Well, point, you're right, you know? and that's what's hard for me to imagine. You know, like I don't know what could have happened beyond that. You know, <laughs> how old was he? Forty nine. Yeah. I mean, I'm not quite forty. No, neither of us are anywhere near there. Yeah, well. Um, but I know in just the last five years, how much I've grown and changed. Yeah. Yeah. So I could imagine, and, and also just like thinking about how the world has changed mm. since 1995. I mean, that was before Will and Grace. Not yeah. Not saying Will and Grace is some, but you know, they say. No, but it's in the mainstream and. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Did you fart or is that your cat? <laughs> You think I fart like a meow? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I think we all do. You know, you know how when it's a little high pitched, <laughs> like a French horn. Anyways, I just know that um, that what what people thought about him and his sort of you know standing in this southern community was so important. Mm -hmm. That it that's what makes it hard for me to imagine. But you're right. Mm -hmm. I can't know that, you know, you're right. I have a, f um, they're not really my friends. They were my parents' friends where the man came out of the closet. And by the way, had a gay son who had come out of the closet 
years earlier. Oh, wow. He came out of the closet um, when they had been married for 50 something years and he was in his late 70s. Oh, wow. Late 70s. Mm-hmm. And the wife, super supportive of her gay son, fully just hates the gay husband. <laughs> Look, I get it. My, my mom's not too thrilled with my dad. <laughs> you know, she feels, you know, hurt and, and uh, betrayed and, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, damaged from that yeah lied to so it's easier to accept the son <laughs> he didn't say i do and you know and uh, right. all of that stuff he didn't so. have to be born that's right <laughs> he didn't ask for this i remember thinking that too like i was like i wish dad why did this, why did he do this to us i know it would mean i would never have been born but that would have been better that was my thinking at the time mm. Yeah. It was just so painful. I guess that's, that's what leads you to think something like that, you know? Yeah. I mean that I don't have that attitude anymore. Right. <laughs> Can you imagine if I was going for the rest of my 25 more years and I was just every one of them, I was like, I wish I'd never been born and it had <laughs> never happened. I mean, that, that's not my attitude. <laughs> right. It would be pretty exhausting. I would, it think, would to be like that. I mean, actually, my attitude now is not at all even like I wish that didn't even happen, you know, because mm. everything that I, you know, am and have become is, is so much because of going through that experience. Right. And, you know, I mostly like who I am, <laughs> what I've become. <laughs> so it was a painful crucible to go through, but. I don't wish it didn't happen, which is the opposite of what it was at the time. Um, right. But we've talked so much about my dad here. We're going to, oh, right. you know, let's not forget. I'm not the only one with a dead parent, Jeff. <laughs> we found out at the end of the last episode about you finding out about your mother's diagnosis. But, you know, what, how'd you react to that? What was the thought process that you went to and who did you... Who did you turn to? What what did you do? I didn't turn to anybody. Hmm. Kind of to my husband. It's so hack. <laughs> it's so cliche. Like if I were if I were giving notes on the screenplay of my life, I'd be like, I'll choose something different than this. But like I just went into hardcore denial where I was mm. like, oh it'll get fixed. <laughs> it'll get fixed. It's just like a flat tire. They're wrong. They said two years to live. That's not true. That's not true. Mm. Um, it was. Wow. Um, and at the same time, my father was also, um, he's still alive, but he, he had an accident when he was 19 years old that caused him to limp his entire life. And his body was just f- failing. Um, and at the same time, my mom's body was failing too. And so up until that point, she had sort of been his legs for him. And then when she couldn't walk from the bedroom to the kitchen without being um, exhausted and winded, and that's a 10 foot walk, then he started becoming the caregiver sort of for her. And it just started getting high pressure about like, how is this going to work? And 
I would get super stressed about it for two or three days and I would sort of tackle whatever issue was going at it right then. You know, I'd, I'd figure out a way to get them home delivery of groceries. And then as soon as I figure that out, I'd be like, it's fine. Everything's fine. I'm in New York. <laughs> They're in Texas. Everything's fine. Everything's oh. fine. And then I'd go home and I'd see how, you know, my dad could barely walk out to the car anymore. And I'd help him put a, a ramp on the little step so that his walker could get up the ramp. And then I'd feel sick to my stomach that everything was awful. And then and then I'd go home to New York and I'd be like, everything's fine, everything's fine. Wow. I mean, very hack response, very, very first draft, if I do say so myself. But it seems so human and natural too. I mean, there's a couple of things about that, like living far away which I also was doing, except for that summer I went home because I was in college up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you're away from it, yeah, you can partly pretend it's not happening because you don't see it every day. But that's also difficult and it's, you know, in another way, because I felt guilty. Oh, I still feel guilty. Mm. You got to feel guilty. It's me one indulgence plus food, drugs, alcohol, yeah. <laughs> and drag race. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, drag race. <laughs> it's kind of like this pandemic. You know, we're coming up on a year of mm-hmm. being, mm-hmm. Um, in this social distanced way, and I am so tired of talking about it, mm. bored with it, but bored with being bored with it. And if you have a terminal diagnosis and it is something that you are forced to consider all of the time, sometimes you just don't want to talk about it or think about it or focus on it. And so we not only didn't talk about the diagnosis all the time, but we also just didn't even talk in a way that, like, I feel like there was sort of this freedom or like a little mini vacation to have a phone conversation where we weren't being like, Let's really discuss our feelings right now. You know oh, what I mean? yeah. Like- <laughs> no, it's, it, it had a much more practical quality to it, if I remember, you know, sort of like, like in terms of if we had to talk about the situation, it was lo- a lot less about like, dad's going to die and more about like, we have to get this insurance settled to get this medication. Exactly. You know, right. it's so nuts and bolts. Do you have a ride to the doctor? It, uh, once you get there, yeah. Yeah. where will daddy park so that you can get out and get to the elevator quick and all that kind of crap. But I mean, you know, again, back to being a 20 and 21 year old, I was just like this poet screaming into the night almost like, how are we not talking about the magnitude of this? You know, like I I, I think as you know, I was 39. So I I think there were times too when I would realize like, oh my God, I, I haven't thought about it for two days. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, you're terrible. Why are you not talking about this? Send her an email where you really confess. <laughs> How beautiful she was in your life. Right, right, right. Oh, they want that for sure. I know, and she's been dead for four years. And I like journaled yesterday or this morning, I think about like, I wonder if she really did know how I felt. You know what I mean? Like it's so, mm. it's, um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think it's just a 21 year old thing. Mm. It's a little bit more universal. Which yeah. is not to say that it's easier for your dad to die when you're 20 than when you're 39. <laughs> well, no, but when you're, 
you no, know, let's compare. Uh, when you're a just past teenage drama queen, like I was, you know, <laughs> everything was very big and sweeping, you know. Yeah. Well, also, I was a 39-year-old drama queen. I'm a 44-year-old drama well, queen. Well, that, that is true. That is true. But I love that about you. <laughs> what was one of the hardest things to to watch? Like an actual, like a physical decline. What was the thing where you were just like, Oh God, I can't, that breaks my heart. Um, my parents moved to a new house when I was a senior in college because my dad couldn't handle the stairs anymore. So they moved to a single story house and it was smaller. So there was no guest room. I didn't have a bedroom. So I always slept on the couch when I went home and I hated that they, they woke up so early and were always like, be quiet because Jeff is asleep. And you're like, I can hear that, you know. <laughs> but what I what I enjoyed was just like hearing her like hum while she made coffee every morning. She had she had coffee, you know, every day. Um, she was really different and unusual. She always had coffee in the morning. Hi, that um, is amazing. She's unique. Um, but she <laughs> She but was loved, unique, Jeff. Yeah, I know. Um, but when she made that coffee, what I loved was like she would kind of hum to herself and just be doing it. And, you know, uh, she'd always be singing some hymn or something. And I remember one morning when she went into it and I could just hear her like, <gasps> and I, I realized, oh, she can't, she can't make her, I need to get up and make her her coffee. She can't make her coffee. And that everyday process to not be able to do that. Like it was one thing to be like, oh, she can't go on vacations anymore. But the idea of not being able to, uh, you know, fucking make a cup of coffee. Yeah. To drink it black. You know what I mean? It's right. Like, she didn't have to like froth milk or anything. <laughs> no, but I expect that makes it feel very like imminent. Like this is. It was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Did you feel like you were the parent in that moment? Um, Did you ever have a moment where you felt like you were the parent and she was the child? Not, not that. What I felt was this is happening too quickly because truly in two years, they went from like fun retirees to like, neither of us can move. Um, and we are alone and in danger in this home, even mm. though this home is like, it's not like a rural home. It's not like they were in the mountains or something. Right. But th they were isolated. They were so isolated. And so I, it's not that I felt like there was a tiny moment later with my dad where I felt like, I think I'm going to have to put my foot down. And then he immediately was like, I think I'm going to have to go into assisted living. And then I was like, then I felt like, um, why did I almost tell him that he needed to go into assisted living? I'm the worst. You didn't, but, Jeff. He said it himself. You did, he did. do it. <laughs> you can absolve yourself of that. Oh, thank you. Thank you, um, parental death, God. <laughs> It'll um, get better when you hear some of the things I did say to my dad. <laughs> you know, the thing that I really took away from talking to my mom, like the one thing we did talk about so much is that she was such a practical person. Even before she had a terminal diagnosis, she was very much like, like I remember she got, they got a roof on their house and they were like, it's a 30 year roof. I'll never have to put on another roof. And I was like, 
God, what a morbid way to look at that. <laughs> I guess it's, it's better than being like, we had to pay $10,000 for a roof or whatever, but, <laughs> but I was, I, I was making, I made fun of her for that. And she was like a super uber practical person. And so, so much of our conversation was about like, you know, well, and you should know you'll need a death certificate. So when, uh, when it does happen, you'll need to order at least 15, if not 30 death certificates so that you can mail them to all of the different insurance agencies and things like that. Cause they all need to know it. And worst case scenario, you'll have an extra one. She'd already looked it up and it was like so much for one. And then it was like cheap to just get 15 more. Oh, she was obsessed with a bargain. She bought this thing from the Neptune society, which was like, um, Mardi Gras crew. Oh no. Oh, okay. <laughs> she was like, weekend at Bernie's my body. And Mardi Gras. <laughs> Take me on a float. <laughs> Get two pulleys and some string and let me wave. Um, it was like this thing where you can get cremated and it's a deal. And it was especially a deal if you bought one, you got to half off on the second one. So she got my dad's. She had signed up my dad too. And she said, now you should know that I did this, but I have not told your father because he does not want to be cremated. But it was such a good deal. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? And she was like, well, if he goes first, he'll never know. And if I go first... What's he going to do? Yell at my body, my dead body. <laughs> and I, you know, I was like, well, I guess he'd be yelling at your ashes. Yeah, that's right. Good, good deal. But he did eventually find out because they're practical. They had already pre-bought a grave site in their hometown of Elgin. And his way of getting back at her was to not sell them and to just put her name on a gravestone. <laughs> uh, even though there's no body there. No. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. She doesn't belong to any place. She's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we know where she is. Yeah. She's on my sister's, the shelf above my sister's Murphy bed in her office. But yes. <laughs> but yeah, but theoretically, <laughs> she's not, the ground does not own her. You cannot, no. she is no. not held. No, no. A, a beautiful lacquered black box on top of my sister's <laughs> Murphy bed owns her. But yes. <laughs> There was so much practicality at my house too. I mean, it just, I remember this is the I thing. I mean, maybe the thing is, is that everybody has to be practical, but it's just so shocking when it, it exhibits itself because you only think of it in the most dramatic terms. And then when the practicality comes up, it's like, oh. It's like well, you and I nice. sure do. We, we just tend to think in dramatic terms, but you know, I mean, I remember, you know, my dad had his business. You know, you've arranged for that to be sold. There was so much um, business to be taken care of. And I did remember, you know, of course, I'm just I'm I'm like no business, all feeling. Right. And um, I just, you know, I mean, I wasn't involved in any of it, but I was just like, how are you all? You know, <laughs> again, the dramatic poet into the night. How are you selling a business? A man is dying. Um, yeah. I did at one point say to my dad, like, what? Like, what's going to happen to mom, you know, but basically mm -hmm. meaning like, what did you, you know, yes, I know you're dying, but also like the story, it doesn't wash, you know, like, what do you, what have you, what have you done to her basically was, was what I meant by that. 
And you know what his answer was? What? Your mother will be well taken care of. <laughs> a complete, just like a complete barrier between any sort of emotional response to that, mm-hmm. which was an emotional question, and a financial security answer. Right. Right, she can pay the mortgage. What yeah. else does she need? Yeah, she'll be taken care of. In fact, I think that was part of the uh, the sale of the business was part of involving that was that that sale then paid off the mortgage. So she did, she was she wouldn't be left with a mortgage. <laughs> Your mother will be well taken care of. And I was just like, I think my mother's probably destroyed and a shell of a person after this, but I guess she got the mortgage paid off. <laughs> like, I just was like, this is not, we're not, my father and I are not, we're not, we just don't process the same, you know, like, right. I, I'm just not, I'm not a businessman. <laughs> right. She's the shell of a human being, but she can buy any dress she wants. That's right. You know, she doesn't have to worry about that monthly note. <laughs> and thank God, I'm not saying I'm not grateful for that, you know, like, right, because I didn't worry about my mother and that's a blessing. Um, I mean, financially, I worried about her in all of the other ways. Quite extensively, actually. <laughs> yes, a lot. Like, yeah, until recently. But, um, but you know, I just, I remember that. Your mother will be well taken care of. And I was just like, wow, that is, it was like he couldn't. But of course, imagine to really approach the real question I was asking would involve him acknowledging the situation that he'd chosen and created and that we were all in and that it wasn't that great for my mother, aside from that she could get the mortgage paid. Right. You know? So it was like, there was just so many limits to what he was capable of, of processing. I was a very compartmentalized man. Well, yeah, he comes by it naturally. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I remember my mom talking about my dad, <laughs> trying to be practical. And she was just telling me, just, you know, you need to be aware that a lot of, you know, we've been married for 50 years. A lot of couples, you know, once one goes, the other one goes very quickly. So it could be within six months or something. And it's been, it's been four years. And I just think she's probably like, what the hell? Yeah, she's like, come on, waiting for him. I thought we had a great and wondrous love that you could not <laughs> live without. Where have you been there? Well, he, you know, it, just to speak to, you know, to her and the credit their love, he is in assisted living and it's not doing well. <laughs> But he's tenacious and he's taking his time. She's, I think she thought, oh, well, he wouldn't be able to even have the will to go on. I know. <laughs> he didn't even make that coffee every day. My God. <laughs> he never drank coffee a day. Oh, well, that's probably why he's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I just always thought that was so funny that she was like, he'll probably go soon. No, and, and of course, like, that's A, not what you really want to hear at that moment, I bet. <laughs> And also it was like just a little bit of ego coming out of her too, which she uh, really didn't have that much of. But I was like, oh, you're really like, you can't live without me. I love that <laughs> bravado though. I know, me too. It's really not my mom, but I, I enjoyed that. That's great. So, but see, oh, all these things come out that you we don't know are there. I know. She was so, so practical. Does that mean your dad wasn't? Did you worry 
about my dad is even more practical. He's even more. Okay. I mean, they are almost impractically practical. Wow. I don't want to explain that. So don't make me. No, I shan't. I feel like it speaks for itself. And if it doesn't. (laughs) They're both like, uh, how did this dramatic homosexual come out of us? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And my sister too was like afraid to speak in public and, you know, has all of her ducks in a row. And I used to make fun of her because she had everything in a, in a, you know, in an organized container and it would be like in a Ziploc bag inside of a Tupperware. And you're like, I think it can be one or the other. Your sister is not old enough to be my mother. Quit talking. (laughs) Now about your sister. So how did the two of you respond differently during this time when your mom was dying? It really brought us closer, but I will say not only did she deal with the impending death, but she has dealt with the, the, the grief in the morning in a, a very different way for me, where it's like, I oftentimes will just be like, I need to turn that off right now and not feel that right now. And with her, she feels it so deeply, so profoundly. And I don't regret her of that. She's really into it and accesses it. And she's often saying things like, you know, I think this is a sign from mama. And I was, I'm always like, oh, it is? Okay. (laughs) She's like really into seeing signs and, or, or, or maybe she's just like more attuned into the universe. But for whatever reason, I'm always like, oh, I just thought, I just thought that was, you know, whatever, a lamp. I just thought it was a red light. Okay. (laughs) So mama wants us to stop here. So does the red light. Right. And like if, right. Like if something's lost, she'll be like, help me find it, mama. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Really? Wow. I, I honestly, I mean, like part of me is like, should I be doing that? Because she well, always finds you, it. <laughs> Love your sister. Do you talk to your mother? Do you, I mean, not, I clearly you don't ask for any, Jeff doesn't need help finding things. Okay. Good for you. But do you, <laughs> but do you talk to her otherwise? I need otherwise? so much help finding things. Well, I, I know you asking. do. Why don't you ask your mother? I, I, you know what? But it's going to be like, oh, mother, help me find that document, which I put in some folder and somewhere on this desktop. <laughs> like, it's all like electronic things. I need help finding. Help me find a writing manager. Shit like that. <laughs> Do you talk to your dad? Not much. Um, I did the other day when it was the anniversary of his death, but it was, but it was just, it literally was this. I looked at the couple of pictures of him on the dresser and I just kind of just sighed. And I just, all I said was, oh, dad. (laughs) See, I try to do something that she would have loved doing on her birthday, which by the way is tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Wow. I want to know what you're going to do. This year, it's very confusing. Like normally I'd go see a Broadway show because she loved coming to New York and seeing Uh, a big splashy musical. And I'd never see like a a dark or, uh, you know, uh, something hard, something, you know, like sad or weepy because my mom was always like, well, I go to the movies to feel better, not uh, to feel worse. That's what my mother does too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which is um, sweet. Uh, And I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah. Oh, but (laughs) you can't do that this year. I know. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh God, you might be reduced to watching The Prom on Netflix. (laughs) 
Mark Sam, I've already seen the prom on Netflix. How dare oh, you? How oh, dear. Well, <laughs> the good, because that's no way to honor your mother. <laughs> I think what I'll do is watch an 80s comedy, something with, you know, maybe like Moonstruck or, or, oh. or Ruthless People. I was just going to say Ruthless People. <laughs> Oh, really? Well, I love that one. And Me that's... too. My mom used to quote it. I'm being discounted. <laughs> oh my God. Well, that is probably what you should do tomorrow. That sounds like a nice thing. You know, I've never actually done that. I've never done anything to mark the occasion or done anything that dad would like. Or well, It became I've... a little tradition the first birthday because she died in October and her birthday's in February. So I that first birthday, I was getting really nervous and I just went on TDF and bought tickets to, I don't even remember what, I think it was Waitress. This show is all about like a dead mother. And I was like, oh God. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. Look, Leslie and I for a Valentine's Day year before last, our our treat to ourselves, because we just hadn't seen it yet was Dear Evan Hansen. Standing at the window <laughs> oh to my, my sadness. Oh my God. Happy Valentine's Day, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> We're like both like, tears, just like wet faces, like we've just been in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ran into you on my birthday when we saw um, Spring Awakening, the, the Deaf West version. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You were there too. And Neil had like a full emotional catharsis catharsis at the end where he was just weeping so hard that I was like, my shirt is wet. (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday to me. (laughs) And and I had to be like, we're about to go see Mark Sam in the lobby. Are you going to be okay? (laughs) Together. Oh God. Just remembering things like seeing friends in the lobby. (laughs) Just too much. Oh, we will live again, Jeff. We will. I'm going to take out. They're dead, but um, they're dead. <laughs> Sorry, I just they're trailblazers. They're they've trailblazed. They've gone to their reward. Was there something like when your dad died that you, or, or maybe even when he was just sick where, that you no longer wanted to do, or like there is, there is, my musical uh, library and my taste changed like on a dime. Um, Yes, because I used to love me all the folksy lesbians. I mean, this was the mid 90s, you know, I mean, and I was super into the Indigo Girls. You know, I saw them a couple of times in concert and not just them, but, you know, that was a big I have some diverse taste, but that was like a large section. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I was like, I cannot listen to this music (laughs) at all, because not that it's not great but it accesses too many emotions. It causes me to feel too much. I cannot feel I need to be numb right now, not to be like just, you know, all the stuff that Emily and Amy and all the other wonderful gals (laughs) can just dredge up from the pit of your soul. And so. Oh my God, Melissa, (laughs) you know, I started listening to, um, Top 40 country. Uh, (laughs) Yes. So you moved from Baton Rouge to Chicago and that's where you started listening to country? That's right. I never listened to country when I was growing up. I thought it was trashy and stupid and I 
I still think that, but <laughs> I have such a soft spot in my heart for 90s country. It was only skin deep and it didn't, it just could be there and it didn't make me feel right. anything. It was just, it was just <laughs> Alan Jackson talking about drinking beer in the river. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And I was like, Reba talking about prostitutes. <laughs> right. And that's, you know, that's always been a good a topic for me. But that, you know, just like that's what I just feel like it met me where I was and it didn't ask anything of me. And I still love 90s country. It's a playlist that I go to again and again. It makes me happy now, even though that time was not a happy time. Somehow mm-hmm. the whatever comfort it gave me has turned into like, a happy memory. <laughs> Very weird. Did you have any art or music or a TV show or something that was like a part of helping you at the time? No, but you know what I did do? I started drinking coffee at 40 years old. You had never drunk coffee. I mean, I had had it. It's not like I'd never No, had but it. not like I have but to I have didn't it have it every day. Right, right, now right. I have it. I know I have it every day. Wow. I wonder... Was there like one day where you were like, I'm going to start doing this? Or you just had it and then you found yourself doing it? Well, see, I should tell you that. Um, P.S. It's better than starting to do heroin every day. It's great. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Oh, I forgot. I also started doing heroin. Well, you um, look wonderful. <laughs> thank you. No meth for me. I got to keep my teeth. Keep the teeth. <laughs> Lose the weight. That's like you picked up coffee. I picked up country music. I mean, it's. And I still haven't put it down. (laughs) I've drifted away. I don't know any of the current top 40 stuff. And I don't like what I hear. But that 90s. Mm. There was some trips I I know that you and I both took with our parents during their, you know, terminal period. And I've been curious about yours. Well, see, my parents, for their 40th wedding anniversary, they took my sister and her husband and my nephew at the time and me. And so then she wanted to do it again for the 50th, but um, she was very sick. She was on oxygen and um, she found this tool called an Inogen, um, which was like a portable oxygen thing where you could actually kind of carry it. It wasn't like full tanks. So you could take it on a plane, you could take it um, places in, and they sort of figured, well, we can go on the cruise. And even though your father can barely walk and I can't really walk either, we'll mainly just be in the room and we'll get, they got a room with a balcony, very fancy, very she-she. And so they could look out on the ocean and sort of sit there and that would be home base. And then my sister and I got these sort of internal rooms that were cheaper, that were, you know, just tiny and, but we weren't gonna be in there that much. I mean, even the room with the balcony is pretty tiny. It's not like... <laughs> All right. Give your mother this one last thing, Jeff. It was lovely. <laughs> it was lovely. It wasn't lovely. It was so sad because you have to walk to meals. You can't get... I guess you probably could have gotten meals delivered, but mm-hmm. I think she did get a couple of them, but... But her favorite thing, you know, one of the big parts of it was going and getting these meals, going to the buffet, going and sitting by the pool to, to read. And, um, and she couldn't do any of those things. And she was exhausted and 
um, it was hard for her to carry the Inogen, so she had to roll it on a little cart. And um, so she asked me to come to her room because she couldn't pack up. She said it was exhausting moving from the suitcase to the drawer. I mean, this was not a big room. That was why I was saying it, not so much about my mom being oh. cheap, but about like, it wasn't like Meryl Streep's in that movie. It was- Right, <laughs> right. You know, it, it was tiny. And and so I I did it and I, I was trying to like buoy the mood, you know, and, and I was like, well, this is nothing. It's no problem at all. We'll get this done real quick. Then we can go sit on the balcony or whatever. And she was just in a foul mood. And I said, are you, are you in a bad mood? And she said, I feel like a damn fool. And she never said damn or, or anything like that. I mean, like that sounds sort of benign saying that, but like it was this deep, uh, you know, profound moment. Because up until then she had always been like, I'm okay. I know my Lord and I'm, I'm gonna be fine with dying and, and I, I'm going home and I'm gonna see my mama and my daddy and you know. Mm. It was kind of like one of the only times where I saw her grief. Mm. Um, it felt like um, the the final realization of like it's over. Yeah, I'm never gonna leave my house. I'm not. This is definitely the last trip, and this wasn't a pleasant trip. It was a very stressful trip, and and it was. It was stressful for all of us, and and it was this realization that like. The party was over. Mm -hmm. The party being, you know, her life. Well, I'm not sure I'm glad I asked that, actually. I and mean, that <laughs> just really breaks my heart. It was really sad. It was. And it's also sad because you think of a cruise and you're and you're like, oh God, a cruise with all these like country bumpkin, dumbass, trashy people rolling around their oxygen tanks, pulling up to a fucking table full of food so they can just eat their feelings. And then you realize like, that's us, we're those people. I mean, it gave me so much compassion for, for the, old people on that trip that they are adventurous mm -hmm. and that they're not just going to stay in Texas or this was Texas. It was pulling out of Galveston. So, you know, was it charming? Mainly a Texas group. Of yeah. People. Yeah. 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 Wow. Though. I mean, bless her heart is really all I want to say, you know, <laughs> what was your, what was your trip? Oh God. I wish it was that nice. Uh, <laughs> No, we went to see um, I, just me and my dad. It was like during the spring break of my junior year. So it was only a few couple months after he'd gotten his diagnosis, maybe not even two months. And, um, and apparently did not know this University of Alabama at Birmingham uh, has an excellent AIDS research that is surprising. Yeah, you know, that's but that's what's the thing about these university specialty areas. You know, they just pop up in unexpected places. But anyways, supposedly one of the better research facilities in the country. Huh. And so we actually went, dad went to see a doctor there and I went with him. A road trip <laughs> to an AIDS research doctor in Birmingham. Mm, I smell a screenplay. Oh my God, I never <laughs> want to write it. I never want to see it. I didn't want to be there. What about just outline? <laughs> <laughs> 
But that was excruciating in different ways than your trip with your mom, because, you know, I just felt like I had to be there in the room with this doctor, this like very, you know, good doctor. <laughs> my, my dad told him the story about getting, you know, becoming HIV infected from a bleeding homeless person in the Exxon refinery parking lot, which I'm, this guy has got to be just like, okay, guy, whatever. That's not how you do it. And then, um, so it just felt like this massive charade. And then we stayed, you know, one night in a hotel and mom had told my dad, your son does not believe this story. Your son does not believe you. But she implied that she did. Well, she did until she, until she couldn't. <laughs> uh-huh. She made herself. But she, when she said that to your dad, she wasn't saying like, Mark Sam doesn't believe it. And neither do I. She was just saying. Well, she had already know. had him swear on some Bibles to her that it was true. And so that was what she needed right then. But I hadn't had that. So I got that in the hotel room in Birmingham with the Gideon Bible. Because, you know, there's a Bible in every hotel room. Dad literally in Alabama, (laughs) literally took it out of the drawer. Yeah, you know, I don't feel right in a hotel where there's not one. I'll be honest with you. Those fancy ones. I stay at the W doesn't have them. I don't know. Um, It just doesn't seem like a hotel. If I need the scripture in the middle of the night. I've been Has that there. ever happened? I've been there, Jeff. <laughs> I've got darkness in my soul. <laughs> I think you know that. Um, well, why aren't you traveling with one? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good point. I mean, it's on my Kindle. I've got a Kindle. Uh, any rate, he took it out of the drawer, the nightstand, and he swore, he put his hand on it, and he said, I, I you know, whatever the words were, I'm telling you the truth. And I was like, oh, damn, this is so painful because I don't, this is like even more ridiculous now with your hand on a Gideon Bible. Like, I still don't believe it. And I know that doctor didn't believe it. And this is just a, a bit of a farce. Although, you know, all I did was just, I just nodded. That I did not challenge him then, but it was percolating and it was a few months later over the summer when I was back down waiting tables at the Cajun Creole seafood restaurant chain Copeland's. <laughs> um, and there was one afternoon, you know, I must've had a dinner shift that night. And um, <laughs> you could have had a day off. I, I might've had a day off. I don't really remember. I might've, um, but dad was, you know, not well. And he was back in his bedroom in the bed and mom was in, on the phone with an insurance person. And there was a problem. Cause anytime you're on the phone with insurance, there's a problem. Cause Amen. that is just, there's nothing right about that industry. And, um, and it was given her grief and she was just at the breaking point and she was almost in tears on the phone. And I just was so angry at the whole situation. And of course there was so much anger that I had at my dad at that time about feeling lied to, feeling betrayed, feeling put in this whole situation because of him, you know, the compassion, as I said, that came years later, but it was not there in the summer of 1995. Unfortunately, and so I, while she was on the phone crying to the insurance person, I, I ran back to his room and I was just 
so full of rage and I attacked him. I attacked him in the bed. I didn't actually hit him. I couldn't, but I was so angry that I started hitting the bed all around him. Like, huh? like literally slapping the mattress. And I mean, he was like, uh, you know, cowering. It was terrifying. I'm sure for him, it's not a pretty chapter in my life, hmm. especially what comes next, because I, what I said was just go ahead and die. You know, why don't you just die already? Hmm. I think I just wanted the whole thing to be over. Hmm. And, um, and then I said the worst thing. Worse no. than why don't you die? Yeah, I think so. Worse for my dad, because he had certainly made all of his choices to avoid this moment, certainly from his own son. You know, but I looked at him and I said, you fucking, fucking faggot. Mm. And, and then I just ran out of the room. Mm. Not my proudest moment. What was the next conversation with your father like? It didn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't, I just ignored it, just ignored it. But I remember later that night or the next day or something, my mother did say to me, she, she looked at me and she was concerned. And she said, what did you say to your father? <sighs> Did you tell her? No, no. Have you I ever? Just, no, no. <laughs> but he must have been terrified or so hurt, I'm sure. Yeah. I hope your mom doesn't listen to this podcast. Oh, she doesn't know what a podcast is. Oh, good. <laughs> Well, that was so much fun. So much fun. Oh, let's do it again soon. Oh, we have to. Everybody, please remember to subscribe and join us next time. Bring your Kleenex. Mine's right by the bed. Wait, is that for crying or are you? Anyways, thanks for listening. And special thanks to Corey Tut for our magical theme song. Bye. Bye. That Kleenex is for whatever I want it to be for, Jeff. All right, well.